It was uh, unexpected, to say the least, when I heard that the question, what is a woman, was at the center of public confusion. I remember, as many of you probably will, being completely baffled when the experienced lawyer, Katanji Jackson, who had graduated with honors from Harvard Law School more than 25 years ago, admitted to being unable to define the word woman at her confirmation hearing as a nominee to the Supreme Court. The line of questioning had begun with whether or not Jackson agreed that schools should teach children that they can choose their gender. To that direct question, Jackson refused to comment on what schools can teach. From there, the questioner, Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn, asked whether Jackson interpreted Justice Ruth Ginsburg's reference to men and women as being defined as male and female in a particular Supreme Court case. Jackson stated that she was unfamiliar with the particular case being referred to, so she couldn't reasonably provide an interpretation. Senator Blackburn then dropped the question that proved to be the bombshell. Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Jackson repeated the question and then said simply, no, I can't. Blackburn looked directly at her and asked incredulously, you can't? Jackson responded slowly with an amused smile, not in this context. I'm not a biologist. Now, I expect her comment was meant to be a humorous retort, but it seems to reflect a perspective that suggests that answering the question, what is a woman, requires one to have a specialist degree in the field of biology. On the next day of the hearing, Senator Ted Cruz referred back to this line of questioning, providing a specific legal context for her to consider. And Jackson indicated that she knew that she was a woman, that Senator Blackburn was a woman, and that her own mother was a woman. While being unable to provide a definition for the word woman, perhaps she was operating on the principle, I know one when I see it. But if so, that implies that there are certain identifiable characteristics that enable a person to be classified as a woman. But it's apparently not just Harvard-trained Supreme Court justices who struggle to answer the question, what is a woman, meaningfully. I know some of you saw Matt Walsh's documentary entitled, What is a Woman? For those of you who haven't seen it, I don't recommend it. It's hard to watch, certainly not an enjoyable experience. However, in the documentary, Walsh interviewed people on the streets, therapists, medical professionals, and politicians. The documentary has an intended comedic bent, I think, but on the whole, I don't think it was a very good documentary in that it was certainly one-sided. After an hour and a half of enduring interview after interview, where we learn a lot about the ideological foundations of today's gender confusion, no one he's actually asked could answer the question, what is a woman? But finally, he returns home to ask his wife, Alyssa, who is not a trained biologist, and she stares at him for a moment before answering straightforwardly, an adult human female. Now, my largest complaint about the documentary is that Walsh doesn't provide a theological perspective. He does interview theologian Carl Truman, but Walsh doesn't ask Truman to answer the question, what is a woman, which I'm convinced Truman could have done. To truly answer the question, what is a woman, we should ask the manufacturer. 
And surprise, surprise, the creator has already anticipated the question and provided the definitive, authoritative answer in the pages of Scripture. But what's fascinating to me is that Alyssa Walsh's response is exactly right. Her response has a deeply theological underpinning, even if she doesn't know it. The English word female has the English word male inside it. Likewise, the English word woman has the English word man inside it. Just call me Captain Obvious this morning. (laughs) The importance of this observation is that we cannot define woman apart from man. We cannot define female apart from male. And that is exactly as God intended it. Last week, we followed Moses as he zoomed in on God's garden in Genesis chapter 2. The garden was planted by God on the sixth day of creation week. The garden he planted on the east side of a place called Eden was lush, well-watered, and beautiful. We saw how God then took dust from the ground and, like a potter, formed that dust into a man. Then we looked at how God placed that man in the garden to cultivate the plant life there, yes, but also to serve as God's priest, serving and protecting the sacred space God had established. We also reflected on how Moses refers to God in this section of Genesis, from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, with the combined phrase, Yahweh Elohim what you see in your English Bibles as the Lord God, with Lord in small caps font. Combining the title that identifies him as the Divine One, God, with his personal name revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai and then revealed to the people of Israel as his name to be remembered throughout all their generations, Yahweh. We pick up the narrative this morning in Genesis 2.18. Just after Yahweh Elohim spoke to the man about what he should eat in the garden and what he must not eat, we get another comment from Yahweh Elohim about the man's lack of a proper partner. Look at verses 18 to 20 with me. Then Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... There was not found a helper fit for him. Do you feel the shock of this moment? Not good. These words were not communicated to Adam. Instead, we have a record of God's internal dialogue, expressing his assessment of the situation and his intention to do something to remedy it. Not good. Ten times in chapter 1, we readers heard God's assessment of his creative work as only good, and then finally very good. Now, we need to recognize that not good is not evil. This is a pause in God's creative act on day 6 of creation week. As day 6 dawned, God created animals, planted a garden, and formed the man. We know from chapter 1 that God creates humanity as his image, his royal representative. But we also know from chapter 1 that God creates humanity as male and female. Here we learn that he didn't create male and female in the same moment. Unlike the land animals, which according to chapter 1 verse 24, he caused the land to bring forth, apparently all at once, God creates the male of humanity individually, 
alone first. But then God assesses the man's aloneness is not good. His aloneness is not loneliness, however. That's not what makes the situation not good. Instead, the problem is that he is not complete. He is handicapped. He is unable to do what he was created to do. God never intended the man to do what he had been commanded to do all by himself. Serving and protecting sacred space, as well as ruling and subduing creation, was never intended to be a solo enterprise. God designed these tasks to be a joint venture, a partnership. God designed these tasks this way so that they could only be done by two or more together in a community and partnership. But the problem is, initially, the man has no partner. Thus, God says to himself, what will solve the not good situation? What will change the not good of 2.18 to the very good of 131? I will make him a helper fit for him. Notice that he doesn't say, I will make him a slave. Notice also that he doesn't say, I will make him a wife. The phrase translated a helper fit for him has acquired some unhappy baggage over the years, specifically as it's been applied to wives. The term helper is used in Scripture most often to refer to God. That fact alone makes it difficult to support the idea that the word helper in this verse is intended to communicate a wife's subjection or even submission to her husband. We should also observe that when New Testament writers call Christian wives to submit to their husbands, the biblical justification for that command is never connected with the Old Testament term helper. The opposite of helper is not leader. Other reasons are given, including from this passage, and we'll come to think about those soon. But for now, just note that the word helper by itself does not suggest the idea of subordination or submission. I suggest the idea of a partner better captures the meaning of the term. The word partner by itself usually emphasizes the idea of equality, but context can modify that emphasis. For example, when the term is used to refer to God, the idea of equality fades into the background. Instead, he is being depicted as the one people desperately need, the one who has the power and resources to provide what we lack. That idea actually fits here too, as we observe that God is the one who is making this partner for the man. Thus, God is helping the man by making this necessary helper. The man could never produce this helper or find this partner on his own. The other aspect of the term partner is that of dependence. The man will be dependent on this helper in certain ways in order to successfully pursue obedience to the responsibility God has given him. So the word conveys a relationship of equality and dependence. Thus, the man's situation is not good given the command God has issued without an equal on whom he can depend for partnership. The phrase translated fit for him is a phrase used nowhere else in Scripture This phrase is intended to signify the helper's equality with the man as well as the helper's equipping to provide what the man lacks to do the job he's been commanded to do. The English word proper highlights the fittingness while also hinting at the difference of the partner. God does not clone the man. 
Instead, he needs someone different from him, but equal to him. As one commentator observes, the man already has God as a superior helper, and he already has the animals as inferior helpers, and God is determined that the man must have an equal partner. The suitability of this partner begins with physical complementarity. As part of humanity's commission was to physically reproduce, God has designed the proper anatomy of the partner to appropriately correspond to the man. The partner will not be a mirror reflection of the man. The partner will not be a clone of the man. The partner will not even be another man. Now, while the Bible never uses this term to refer to the man in relationship to the woman, man is never called woman's helper in the Bible, the meaning of the term, particularly with this unique phrase, fit for him, implies a certain mutuality. So that I think it's quite right to say that men help or partner with women, just as much as women help or partner with men. I must emphasize at this point, we are not yet talking about marriage. Marriage comes in as a subset of this discussion, which is probably part of the reason why the Bible never specifically says that a wife is designed to be helper to her husband. Instead, the major implication we need to see here is that God is setting up the world to have men and women partnering together in lots of different ways in order to serve as his royal priests in this world. Marriage becomes one particular expression of this partnership, but the work that humanity is called to goes beyond marriage. In Genesis 2, this original man and this original woman will indeed marry and form the first marriage that sets the paradigm for all other marriages and families. But this relationship of proper partnership goes beyond marriage. Now, it doesn't appear that God told the man about his aloneness. He didn't tell Adam that he was in a not-good situation. Instead, he seems to allow him to learn it for himself. Rather than reveal that information, he provides Adam with an exercise that would enable him to draw the proper conclusion. In verse 19, we have a translation ambiguity to consider that matters a lot. If you're reading the King James Version, the New King James, the New American Standard, the Holman Christian Standard, or several others, you'll read something like, and out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. The word and at the beginning of the verse and the verb formed could be read to suggest that God created these animals after he created the man. This straightforward reading creates a contradiction with the sequence laid out in chapter 1, where the birds were created on day 5 of creation week, and the land animals were created clearly before humanity on day 6. Some students of Scripture don't recognize this as a contradiction, choosing to believe that perhaps God created more birds and a new group of land animals after creating the man. That is a possible reading of the text, but it seems a bit far-fetched to me. The alternative is to translate the verb as the ESV and NIV and a few other versions have. Had formed previously. This is a legitimate way of translating the verb tense under certain circumstances. Given the context, with chapter 1 in the background, I believe Moses intends verse 19 to point back to God's prior action. And the verb tense can be legitimately translated that way. But let's acknowledge the ambiguity here. 
The point is, in any case, that animals are paraded before Adam in the garden, and he is commissioned to name them. This is Adam reflecting God as his image, mirroring God's own naming of various aspects of creation earlier in the week. Now, he, the man, wasn't around to witness or hear God naming day and night, sky, land, and seas, but it's reasonable to presume that God communicated these names to Adam so that he would know what to call them. Otherwise, Adam would have to name them all over again. Some Bible readers remain skeptical that this one man could have accomplished this all in one day. As we're seeking to hold chapters 1 and 2 together, it would seem that God brought every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens to the man in the garden to see what he would name them. Surely, that would take a very long time. Young Earth creationists have addressed this question several times, and the problem depends on how we define the kinds of animals referred to. Modern science classifies animals into various categories and subcategories, numbering into the millions. Critics of the Bible assume that Moses is indicating that Adam must have named all these millions of species. However, given the specification that Adam names only land animals and birds, and given a reasonable tracking of species according to a creationist model, it's quite likely that Adam was only required to classify at most a few thousand kinds of animals. And since the text tells us that God brought them to him in the garden so that Adam doesn't have to hunt down or trap them, it seems reasonable that Adam could have dedicated himself to this task for a few hours of day six of creation week. But all this aside, the point of the exercise is really to provide Adam an opportunity to recognize his own aloneness, to feel the not-goodness of his situation. He could have spent the rest of his life naming the animals. He didn't have to do it all on day six unless there was a point for him. Moses' summary at the end of verse 20 tells it all. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam wasn't necessarily looking for a partner, and once he discovers that there isn't a proper partner for him, he doesn't attempt to satisfy his own need independently of his creator. We readers already know how God will solve this problem, and now we get to read a description of him doing so. In verses 21 and 22, we read about how the Creator builds a woman. So Yahweh Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that Yahweh Elohim had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The word translated deep sleep is only used one other time in Moses' writings in Genesis 15, where God puts Abraham into a supernatural sleep in order to reveal to him the significance of the covenant relationship he was initiating with him. It's possible that we should see the covenantal significance of that occasion in Genesis 15 reflecting this situation in Genesis 2, so that God's anesthetizing Adam sets the stage for God's gracious provision of another covenantal blessing. As God has laid obligations on Adam to serve and protect the sacred space of Eden and the garden, now God supplies the gracious gift Adam would need in order to properly to be properly equipped to do the job. The surgical procedure is curious. As many students of Scripture have pointed out, the word translated rib never means rib anywhere else in Scripture. 
In Exodus, the word is used repeatedly to designate one of the sides of the tabernacle. Likewise, in 1 Kings, the word is used repeatedly to refer to the walls or side chambers of the temple Solomon built. So probably, rather than focus specifically and only on one of Adam's rib bones, we should probably envision the Lord taking a chunk out of Adam's side, which may have included a rib bone, as well as the covering skin. The Creator took Adam's flesh and bone to make the original woman. Then the divine surgeon heals Adam's body, sealing up Adam's side, fully repaired, I assume without even so much as a scar. The Creator's earlier designation of her as fit for the man indicates that the Lord made her for the man. And here, the material of Adam's side shows that the Lord made her from the man. Thus, as Douglas Kelly notices, she's the first among the created beings to come from a living being. The Apostle Paul draws significance from both of these facts, made for the man and made from the man, and we'll explore the significance of that next Sunday. The importance of her being made from Adam's side has often been commented on. Few can surpass the 17th century Puritan Matthew Henry. He wrote that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Whereas the Creator was depicted as a potter, molding dirt into a man, here He is depicted as a builder, manufacturing Adam's flesh and bone into a woman. The verb translated made in verse 22 is the normal word for building or construction. Having built her, the Lord then brought her to the man. This has a couple different important associations. First, we note that the Lord had just brought all the land animals and birds to Adam to see what He would name them. Likewise, he now brings the newly created woman to the man to see what he would name her. Theologian Mark Talbot draws out the significance of this when he writes, When Adam awoke, God brought the woman to him, in effect challenging him, Now name this. And so he will. Another significant association here is that God's bringing the woman to the man pictures God as arranging the original marriage. Rather than father of the bride, he is builder of the bride but he nevertheless gives her away to the man. Even more than this, however, going back to the significance of the term helper or partner, Rebecca Merkel observes in her book, Eve in Exile, when God gave Eve to Adam, he was handing Adam an amplifier. Adam alone is just Adam. Adam with Eve becomes the human race. Whether we're talking specifically about marriage or just about the reality of male and female in this world, the implication of this passage is that men and women should serve the Lord side by side in this world, partnering together to advance the concerns of the kingdom of God. The woman is absolutely essential. Author Katie McCoy, in her book, To Be a Woman, has an excellent reflection on this point. She writes, Note that we're talking about men and women here, not only husbands and wives. This does not mean a single woman is not fully made in God's image unless she gets married or that she can't reflect God without a husband. It means that we, God's masterpieces, cannot fulfill His purposes without both men and women working together in the world interdependently. 
And that can happen in a variety of ways. Whether married or unmarried, the meaning and purpose of our embodied lives is found and directed outside of ourselves and in relationships. In verse 23, we get the first words of a human ever recorded. The man gushes forth a poetic praise of his partner. The first word of man in Scripture is celebrating the excellence of woman. And these first words are in the form of poetry. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You know, the original texts of Scripture don't have punctuation, but if there was ever a call for an exclamation point, it's right here. The word translated at last, most versions have now, completely missing the point, expresses Adam's recognition of the climactic conclusion of a long process. In other words, when he was put to sleep, he had just finished naming the animals, apparently with disappointed recognition of his aloneness. At last! He wakes up to this wondrous creature in whom he recognizes his proper partner, the helper fit for him. He recognizes her as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Perhaps he recognizes her skeletal structure mirrors his own in certain ways and her skin tone is mostly smooth like his own rather than covered in fur or feathers or thick hide like most of the animals. But bone and flesh together also would serve as an idiom for Moses' readers that simply identified someone as family. For example, in Genesis 29, 14, Laban would recognize Jacob, his sister's son, as my bone and my flesh. Thus, the family connection indicates that the source of the bones and the flesh is the same family line. But for Adam, this poetic phrase is literally true. Within the poetic praise, Adam names his partner. This act of naming does seem to indicate an expression of his authority in line with how he names the animals. In a sense, he is acknowledging his responsibility to care for her. He must love her as he loves his own body. But let's not overread this. He, when the man names the animals, he's classifying them based on observable characteristics. He is explicitly given the authority to do this from God. Thus, God, who named aspects of creation in chapter 1, delegates authority to the man to name certain animals. By doing so, the man is exercising a measure of delegated authority. But that authority doesn't indicate that he owns the animals or that he commands the animals so that they must obey his commands. Rather, he is simply categorizing them, something that the animals presumably don't even know anything about. Also consider that the man's naming the animals doesn't mean he named them with personal names, the way we might name our dog Fido, identifying it as our pet. Rather, he was doing what scientists do in classifying various species. Likewise, with this new creature built from his own body, he utilizes his God-designed command of poetry to create a play on words based on similar sounds. Now, A little bit of Hebrew will go a long way here, so bear with me. Some of you will have heard some of this before. The Hebrew word translated man at the end of verse 23 is the first appearance in the Bible of ish. The Hebrew word translated woman is isha. 
These two words sound similar, but they are not actually related by root. Throughout the Old Testament, these are the basic words to refer to a man and a woman. However, back in Genesis 1.27, when we read about God creating humanity as male and female, Moses used two different words to designate male and female. And contrasting the two pairs is quite illuminating. The word translated male is zakar, and the noun conveys a physical description of distinctly male anatomy. Likewise, the word translated female is nakuba, which also conveys a physical description of distinctly female anatomy. Now stay with me. When we see these two pairs in close proximity in Genesis 1 and 2, we may very well have a reflection of the two contentious concepts of biological sex and gender identity. Consider the explanation of Katie McCoy, again from her book, To Be a Woman. She writes, Here, in Genesis 2, humanity is no longer called Zakar, male, and Nakubah, female. Instead, they are Ish and Isha, man and woman. This pair of terms reflects how male and female relate to each other. Just as the woman came from the man, so Isha sounds like it comes from Ish. In other words, Ish and Isha describe their gender identity. If a human being is a male, Zakar, God created him to be a man, Ish. If a human being is a female, Nakuba, then God created her to be a woman, Isha. The sexed body was designed to correlate with the gendered self. By design, sex indicates and informs gender. Someone with a male anatomy is a man, and someone with a female anatomy is a woman. Biology indicates and informs identity. We can trust our bodies to tell us who we are. Now consider the importance of this beyond the relevance it has to the gender confusion of today. God brings the woman to the man just as he brought the animals to the man. Then the man calls her woman. God doesn't name her. She doesn't name herself. God doesn't tell him what to call her. And God doesn't tell them to name each other. Instead, the man names her woman, identifying her as like him, derived from him, and corresponding to him. Unlike the birds and land animals, she matches him in a complementary way. They are not identical twins or clones, but they fit together like corresponding puzzle pieces. And that's not just a physical, anatomical comment. It's as though he recognizes that not only is she the solution to his aloneness, but he also recognizes that she properly unites with him to become one flesh. Now, I mean no offense to the dog lovers in the building, but dogs were never intended to be man's best friend. God intended woman to be man's best friend. And I mean no offense to the women in the building either. Thus far, this text highlights the importance of male-female relationships of all kinds. But Moses wants to apply this directly to marriage in particular. So in verses 24 and 25, he highlights the partnership of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
We've looked at these verses on a number of occasions, somewhat disconnected from the larger creation account. Verse 24 is definitely Moses' parenthetical comment, stepping out of the narrative to address his Israelite audience directly to provide a foundational explanation for the significance of marriage. This makes it clear that this woman has been given to this man not only as a proper partner, a helper fit for him, but also as a wife. The God-intended equal partnership of men and women in this world takes on a particular shape within the context of marriage. The leaving and cleaving, or holding fast to language, reflects a covenant relationship. And this is made explicit in other passages of Scripture. Marriage is a covenant. From history, we know that Israelite men didn't typically, literally, leave the home of their parents. So it's likely that Moses is highlighting a different issue with the use of the word leave. One writer summarizes the point really well. To leave his family meant forfeiting his family's industry and wealth, his brother's protection, sister's friendship, and the security of an inheritance. It meant, in short, to sacrifice his life for his bride. Thus, even if a man and his wife continue living in their parents' house, which was often the case... Moses is saying that marriage necessitates the man's separation from his ordinary obligations towards his parents. Now, biblically, some obligations to parents continue, but the parent-son relationship is no longer to be the primary relationship that defines his identity. This would also be true for the wife. Their equal interdependence in marriage replaces the typical dependence even an adult son or daughter, had toward parents while they remained unmarried. The promise, then, is that the man and his wife shall become one flesh. Is it a promise? Or is it a command? Or is it somehow both? In one sense, this is the goal of marriage. As one writer expresses it, from one, they become two, to become one again. Though different, they unite together, and this uniting is viewed as good. In becoming one flesh, the man doesn't become the woman, the woman doesn't become the man, and they don't somehow morph into being identical. Rather, they are to be unified with their differences. Now, ordinarily, couples do often take on some characteristics of each other. A husband influences his wife. A wife influences her husband. Sometimes that means that the husband may learn to be more like his wife in certain areas and vice versa. But Moses is highlighting a fundamental unity that is both goal and also gift, both promise and command. The tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility plays out in the drama of marriage. Jesus tells us this plainly. It is God who unites man and woman in marriage. A major implication of God's joining husband and wife together in marriage is well drawn out by biblical counselor Aaron Cerrone, who writes, Husband and wife share in one another's suffering, pleasure, thought, and work. This one flesh bond is both a given and a goal. When a couple marries, God joins them together in one flesh. And as with a physical body, pain, discomfort, or injury to any one part diminishes the functioning of the entire body. It's the same when one body part is functioning well. 
the entire body will benefit from each part's health and well-being. Each member naturally shares suffering and health in a profound way. But husband and wife both have the responsibility to cultivate their unity, to move toward each other in every way, emotionally, physically, intellectually, spiritually. Unity implies sharing, the sharing of life, the sharing of thoughts, the sharing of feelings, the sharing of experiences, the sharing of time. This doesn't necessarily mean that the husband and wife should agree on everything. In fact, we can take our cues for the pursuit of unity in marriage from the Bible's instructions on pursuing unity in the church. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Notice how he qualifies being of the same mind with having the same love. Unity in the church is not necessarily about having all the same convictions or the same opinions. Certainly, it involves unity around what we believe about Jesus, but the unity Paul pushes us to pursue here involves an engagement of our minds motivated by love. We won't experience the kind of unity Paul urges without genuine love for each other. Applied to marriage, Cerrone writes, unity is like friendship in that it most often occurs without a couple thinking about it and is present when both spouses are actively and energetically engaged in doing what's best for the other. How does this look? Paul elaborates in Philippians 2.3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Aaron Cerrone comments, Unity grows as couples communicate authentically and respond humbly in care for one another. The goal is not to agree on all opinions and preferences, but rather to regard each other's needs and sensibilities as their own. It's helpful to consider asking yourself, if you're married, what do I do that strengthens unity in my marriage? The other question is important, too. What do I do that erodes unity in my marriage? As we perform this kind of self-examination, we mustn't get bogged down in guilt, feeling like a failure. Instead, we pursue changing what we're responsible to change, and we do this as we remember that God has already, by grace, as a gift, united us together. We are united. We are one flesh. The call is to live like it. Just as the Spirit has united the church to Jesus as His body and all its members to Jesus as parts of His body as we trust in Him, the moment we trust in Him, so also God unites husband and wife as one flesh when we exchange our solemn vows at the altar. One final quote from Cerrone. The Lord joins a couple in one flesh with a deep connection and bond that is at the root of their union. It's not something a couple must attain because it's already theirs. But it is also their goal, one that they pursue, prioritize, and tend. It's this bond that makes communion and intimacy between a husband and wife possible and a growing reality. A one-flesh union is the door 
to one flesh communion. Now, what does this have to do with sex? Quite often, the anticipation of becoming one flesh is connected specifically to the act of uniting sexually. This is not wrong, but it's incomplete. The physical act of a man and a woman uniting sexually seals a deeper union. It is intended to be the outward sign of the covenant relationship of marriage, a sign that God intends would be repeated in order to deepen the union and communion of the couple. But... This physical act is intended to be a reflection of a broader and deeper intimacy. At the same time, the physical act has the potential to influence those other areas of intimacy and vice versa. Now, I said that very neutrally. Sexual expression in marriage is complicated. And distorted sexuality can harm other areas of intimacy. It's something that is easy to distort, to turn into an opportunity for selfish gratification, or else an opportunity to manipulate for some other desire. Or, sex can be viewed as an end in itself, instead of a means to a greater end, and that end would be the pursuit of pleasing the partner, Strengthening intimacy and unity of the marriage and glorifying God. Viewed this way, healthy sexual intimacy can amplify and deepen the other areas of intimacy in marriage. The final statement of the chapter returns to the narrative. Verse 25 is a transitional statement that sets the stage for chapter 3. However, Moses cleverly places it here after his parenthetical comment about the significance of marriage in his day, which helps us connect the nakedness to the intimacy and unity expressed in the previous verse. One writer summarizes simply, nothing, not even clothing, comes between them. Shame involves feelings of embarrassment, feeling like a failure or otherwise unacceptable for some reason. Shame is a social reality. The tense of the verb probably emphasizes that the man and woman felt no shame before each other. One may even say that in Hebrew, this term is the true opposite of trust. Thus, at this moment, the man and the wife trust each other completely. There's also no sense of vulnerability. In other words, they aren't afraid that the other person is going to hurt them or take advantage of them. Nakedness has more to do with vulnerability and exposure than simply lacking clothing. Thus, as we think about the possibility of pursuing being naked and not ashamed in our marriages, it's not just about feeling comfortable with our partner in the bedroom. It has more to do with trusting each other to have our best interests at heart, especially when we're vulnerable, which would include emotional vulnerability. Just as a matter of marital wisdom, recognize that vulnerability in one area of life often impinges on other areas of life. In other words, if your spouse doesn't feel safe to open up their emotions with you because you criticize or are not sensitive, then your spouse might not feel safe to open up their body to you either. Strengthen the one, and you may find the other improving as well. Now, we'll come back to this idea at the end of Genesis 3, but it's likely that we should recognize from the broader biblical story and teaching that humanity was not intended to remain naked. 
clothing was always part of God's design for humanity. I'll leave that idea to tease you for the next few weeks until we can explore it more fully. So as we come to the end of the message this morning, we've seen that God has provided a proper partner for the man in the garden. Men and women should view each other as essential partners in living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven on earth. In marriage, the equality of the partnership takes on a unique shape by which the man is granted a measured authority, an extra burden of responsibility to care for her as he works together with her in obeying the Creator's commands. And if there had been no woman, then there could not have been a womb in which a Savior could be conceived. As God has brought this fitting partner to help Adam, so God has sent Jesus to help humanity. But unlike the newly created woman, Jesus must be viewed as our senior partner. One website defines a senior partner as a high-level position, usually in a law, accounting, consultancy, or financial services firm that's established as a legal partnership with the company in which these professionals work. Senior partners are often professionals with several years of experience within their industry. They have greater authority. They have greater responsibility. Certainly, Jesus, as our helper, doesn't focus on equality the way the woman as the man's helper in the garden does. Instead, as God is identified as Israel's helper repeatedly in the Old Testament, so also Jesus is our helper in the New Testament. But the connection with Eve as helper of Adam remains. Consider Hebrews 2, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The author employs two different words translated help in this passage. It's the one in verse 18 we need to attend to closely. The author highlights how Jesus' true humanity qualifies him to serve as high priest. He is like his brothers in every respect. That is to say, he shares in flesh and blood. As he served as a merciful and faithful high priest, he offered himself as the sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath. Look what kind of help this partner provides. He helps by dying. He helps by suffering the death penalty in the place of sinners. But the author moves in a slightly different direction here. He zooms in on the help Jesus provides as we experience temptation. The author returns to this theme in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, where we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every one of us suffers. And when we suffer, don't we often experience unique temptations to sin? Temptations to doubt? Temptations to complain? 
temptations to rage, temptations to get relief in all the wrong ways? How do we receive the help Jesus offers? In these verses, we are invited to approach the throne. I hope you love that picture as much as I do. It envisions the enthroned king, Jesus, welcoming us to approach, to ask for help. I can't help but remember the the story of Esther and how the Persian king held out his scepter to her. And she was worried that that wouldn't happen. And there was a great risk that that wouldn't happen. You and I have no danger of that not happening for us. Jesus is pictured as always holding out the scepter for us. We may always approach freely. And notice that the throne is characterized by grace. We can confidently, boldly, unashamedly walk right up to the throne like we belong there. Because we do. The king is our elder brother. We are part of his family. This is a picture of the Lord's gracious sovereignty. And he delights to exercise his gracious sovereignty to bring help to his suffering children. Hebrews has reminded us of Jesus' humanity so that we might remember his sympathy, that he knows what our suffering feels like. He's not a distant king in a faraway palace, unapproachable. You don't have to make an appointment to see him. You don't have to pay for admission tickets. You don't have to bribe the security guards. Some of you are suffering relationally. Your marriages are strained and difficult. Some of you are suffering bodily. Disease and the process of aging multiplies aches and pains. Some of you are suffering emotionally. Fear and anxiety dominate your days. Jesus understands. In short, you all, we all need help. I've done this before. It's good to practice. Will you all join me and hold up your hand like this? Come on, all of you. You got hands. Just hold up one hand like this, like you're trying to get the teacher's attention, okay? Quietly. Now repeat after me. I need help. I need help. Louder. I need help. Good. You need to practice that. We're not very good at that. King Jesus offers you mercy. King Jesus offers you grace. He promises that His mercies are new every morning. He promises that His grace is sufficient for you. His power is brought to complete expression in our weakness, in our brokenness. When He answers, when He extends mercy, when He pours out His grace, it doesn't always look like you expect it to or wish it would. He doesn't always take away the weakness. He doesn't always repair the brokenness in the moment. He doesn't always change the circumstances. But I'll end this morning by telling you what He always does do. On the authority of Scripture, I can say with absolute certainty that God is always doing at least two things. In every painful circumstance, we believers experience. First, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, He is working things together for our good. All things together for our good, for our benefit, particularly moving us toward the end goal of conforming us into the image of His Son. As we share in His sufferings, 
God changes us to look more like Jesus. Sometimes the resemblance is pale, faded, fuzzy, and sometimes the resemblance doesn't show up until much later. Secondly, I can't summarize more clearly than Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the hands of the graciously sovereign King, Jesus, all of your suffering, all of your brokenness, all of your pain will be eternally productive. Cry out for help and trust Jesus to give it to you. To conclude our time of worship together, we have a very special opportunity this morning.